it's not just perception. There's actually data to account for what people argue is a polarization among us that is unprecedented in at least American history, or maybe at least in our living memory. And surely Tuesday is going to come and to go, and we all wonder what will happen and what will happen in the ensuing days. And so to, to kind of set things in context, we kind of went out and, and um, shook the bushes and, and uh, talked to anybody that we could, asking them, what's their theory about how we've gotten here in this moment in this way? Here's what they said. How did we get here? How did we get where? <laughs> How did our nation get to where it is? Uh, I think it's a culture of me, um, where me has become the most important thing, and that's reflected in politics, and it's reflected in media, it's reflected in personality. I think just one thing that jumps to mind among many reasons is uh, just rampant uh, individualism. So we're always thinking about ourselves first, um, and then other people second or third, or, and God somewhere down the list. Self-worship, no matter which side you're on. I think it has a lot to do with greed. People want more and more and are willing to do anything to get it. I think that the way we got here is that we don't have genuine discussion where we enter into a conversation open to what the person is saying. We enter into a discussion ready to fight and ready to like convince them of what we think is right. Part of the problem is that we're too herd-minded politically. Like we've kind of put ourselves into like very few different groups and we're not allowing ourselves to outside of them like in every part of our lives we have to be belonging to this one group or else we won't belong there you know something uh this is not going to be a popular answer but i think the answer may be technology we're just too connected and yet too disconnected and all of the little channels that we create make us more and more introspective and disconnected from each other and allow us to create our own little world. Social media. I think that we've always been here. Um, we've never not been in a place where the racial turmoil has been in existence. Um, financially, the world has been all over the place. So I, I don't think that we've ever not been in this situation. I think it's just more able to be seen because of social media and Facebook and the news being more readily accessible. Yeah, the society, no one values the things that bring us together. Everyone values the thing that I think right now and whatever that is, not how can I work together with somebody to accomplish something. Um, whether it's social media or whatever, it's all about me. We pull apart, we keep going further and further, leads us to where we are now. I think it's human nature and we're doomed to repeat it. Everybody's got a theory to account for why we find ourselves in the predicament and the turmoil that we're in. Everybody has one. You have one. I have one. Maybe we're not aware of it, but, but somewhere, if pressed to uh, answer, we would give an, our own you know, common man's explanation of what accounts for how we got here. And it's important to understand maybe how we got here as best we can, because when you understand how we got here, maybe that gives us some insight into how we escape from it or at least how we move on a little bit. 
we have been listening to Daniel for a very long time and the, the fiery furnaces and the lion's dens and the, and the funny dreams, those are kind of in the past now. Now we're switching to a new mode, but in this passage, Daniel takes on a very different temperament for a very, very different purpose. And essentially, he's going to address a question that we're all asking, but from his perspective, and that is, how did they get there? And I think there are parallels in the answers that he's going to come up with or have it revealed to him that will help us to ask ourselves the question, how do we get here? And I think that answer to that question is really reads like a story, a story in three acts. Act one, a prayer of repentance. Act two, a word of regard. And act three, a day of reckoning. How did we get here? Let's see if Daniel might have some answers for us. If you would, I wonder if you might lean in and listen patiently to Daniel chapter 9. Our central text for today is found in Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the laws of Moses, the, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done against Jerusalem. And as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. 
And the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made understood to me, speaking with me, and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince, who it is to come, shall destroy the city and sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of the Lord. So just like Gandalf in the Fellowship of the Ring, when Middle-earth comes upon this strange ring and its power, Gandalf goes off to the archives. Daniel's doing that. Daniel is consulting the archives of Israel's history. He's consulting the book, the prophet Jeremiah. 
but he's going to it not just to read for his own fancy, he's going to it with a question. When is the exile that Judah finds itself in going to end? When's it going to be over? When will there even be any hope of restoration into what Judah once was? And, and so he goes, and so he consults, and instead of simply reading stuff and, and taking some notes and, and going back and reporting back, his first, first impulse is to do something else. His first impulse is to pray. And not a prayer like you'd think of a quiet time where he lights a candle and pulls out his journal and, and puts on some tea. This is a different kind of prayer. This is a prayer of great passion. This is a prayer of repentance. Repentance that has all the marks of a true repentance. He is naming everything that is regrettable, naming all of their errors, owning everything that they've done that they consider sinful. It is a repentance of remorse, uh, remorse for the treachery that Israel has committed against its God through its disobedience. It is a repentance that is full of lament about everything that they've lost as a consequence of their disobedience. And it's a lament of holding up their darkness to the very searing light of the Lord who is both their God, but also the God who is righteous and holy. And he is appealing to God in this prayer on the basis of the knowledge of his character, that God is one known for his mercy. But he's also appealing to God on the basis of God's own concern for his own reputation. The reputation of one who has birthed the most unlikely nation to ever see fit or, or set foot on the planet, uh, a people that is the most unlikely to ever be a beacon for the entire world and every nation that exists therein and thereafter. That is a prayer of repentance. And in that prayer, uh, it's in some ways Daniel's answer to the question, how did Judah get here? How did they find themselves in this predicament, in this exile, but all not simply to account for that, but to ask themselves, what's the way out? What's the way forward out of this place? Now, what I want you to know before we go on, or rather what I want you to notice is, first of all, Daniel's place in the prayer. He is, as he is praying, he is not simply throwing his dim-witted brethren under the bus saying, look what they did. He's identifying with his people he is embracing what they have done, and he is confessing his own sin at the same time that he is confessing theirs. He says in verses 4 and 5, I prayed to the Lord my God, made confession. We have sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. He's not just saying, hey, mistakes were made, but not by me. He's saying he's got his own mistakes to argue and to confess, which, which should make us a little bit impressed because everything we've heard from Daniel thus far makes us think that he is the last person who has anything to regret, to be remorseful of, or to confess. And yet, he himself is identifying with his people in that moment. Now, a little context. When he's making this prayer of confession, Judah has been in exile for decades. And, and, and Daniel has been among the king's courts of various um, uh, administrations for a very long time. So what's being confessed here is really the sins of his ancestors. The ancestors who, 
who disobeyed the Lord and for such were exiled to a place not their own. And so what he's confessing is not his sin, or rather he's not saying that his sins are the same as his ancestors' sins, but he is saying he's sharing in the same consequence, the same regret, the same remorse for what they committed. He has his own, but he certainly is pointing to those of his whole nation. Now, you hear something like that and, and you think, wow, um, he's confessing the sins of a whole nation. Who is he to do that? Uh, who is he to represent his whole nation uh, calling out upon them? Isn't that rather arrogant? Isn't that rather condescending? Uh, in her novel, Gilead, uh, Marilyn Robinson puts in the words of Reverend Ames, a Congregationalist preacher. He makes, the, he makes the distinction between a scribe, who is one very knowledgeable in the law of God, and a prophet, as the one who speaks on behalf of God. And he says, the difference between a scribe and a prophet is that the prophets love the people they chastise. That's Daniel. Daniel is not looking down his nose and wagging his finger. He's identifying with his people's sin at the same time that he is calling them out for it. He's confessing their sins. Now, for him to do that is to acknowledge both a long-standing nature to their sin and a very deep-seated quality to it. And at that same point, you might say, fine, you can, you can argue that Daniel is loving, but is it proper can anyone properly confess the sins of a whole nation without qualification, without any kind of, you know, clarification on that one? You probably wouldn't be surprised to hear that even C.S. Lewis wrote on something like this, like national repentance. In fact, in 1940, he wrote an article for The Guardian called The Dangers of National Repentance. And the reason he called it a danger, the context was, if you're a, a Brit in World War II, there were some who were stepping forward to say, the reason World War II has befallen Europe and its allies is for the sins they committed at the end of World War I, and therefore it would be proper for them to confess those sins as a nation for what they did 30 years prior to it. And, and C.S. Lewis argues, you know what, when it comes to national repentance, there's a danger because when people do that, it's usually people using the word we, but what they really mean to say is those people over there in the third person. And when you confess in a national way, it usually means you're operating from a sensibility that doesn't even give the opportunity for forgiveness and therefore leaves out the very possibility of any kind of reconciliation or justice. There's the danger. But that said, he still says there's a place for it. And, and shouldn't we talk about that? Because that's certainly a, a topic of discussion in recent months, years, or decades, isn't it? So listen to what C.S. Lewis says about the idea of national repentance, especially when it comes to the church. Is it not, then, the duty of the church to preach national repentance? I think it is. But the office, like many others, can be profitably discharged only by those who discharge it with reluctance. We know that a man may have to hate his mother for the Lord's sake. The sight of a Christian rebuking his mother, though tragic, may be edifying. But only if we are quite sure that he has been a good son and that in his rebuke, spiritual zeal is triumphing, not without agony, over strong natural affection. The moment there is reason to suspect that he enjoys rebuking her, 
that he believes himself to be rising above the natural level while he is still in reality groveling before it in the unnatural, the spectacle becomes merely disgusting. Daniel is taking no joy in what he is calling out in his people. He's not enjoying it in the least. He is grieving along with them, which makes his call for a national repentance in his prayer both proper and loving. Now, um, why bring all this up? Every generation, for its own health, has to ask itself the question at times whether or not it has lost the plot. Every generation, every people, every constituency, every culture, from time to time should ask whether it has found itself in a ditch of its own making. Every generation should at least be asking the question, are there things we have forgotten? Are the decisions that we were insensible to at the time, are there idols that we have made for ourselves that we were just never aware of, that we probably need to reckon with? That's a healthy way. It's at least worth asking. And Brothers and sisters and those who might be looking on from afar, isn't it worth asking whether, especially in this season of great momentous choice, whether or not we've made too much of this thing called politics? That's a question that even is easy to answer whether you're on the left or on the right or in the center. Here's a voice from the right that I have shared with you before. Her name is, is uh, Kristen Johnson. She writes, Christians in the latter decades of the 20th century focused on politics as the best way to enact cultural change, dedicating much time, energy, and money toward that end. It's not clear, however, that cultural change works the way those Christians assumed it did. Too often, they prioritized politics to the neglect of other formative cultural institutions and the callings of everyday Christians to engage in those institutions. That's a voice from the right. But now listen to a voice from as far left as you might imagine. Her name is Camille Paglia. And she wrote this. Those who invest all of their spiritual energies in politics will reap the whirlwind. The evidence is all around us. The paroxysms of inchoate, infantile rage suffered by those who have turned fallible politicians into saviors and devils, godlike avatars of good and evil. That's a voice from the left. The left and the right are lining up in lockstep, and even the center admits it and agrees with it too. Here's David Brooks. We have more to fear from those who let their politics determine their faith practices and who turn their religious commitments into political armies. We have more to fear from people who look to politics as a substitute for faith. Uh-oh. Friends, when we're kind of drilling down into what is Daniel's prayer of repentance, we're asking ourselves the question, what's at the heart of their problem? It was more than whether or not they paid the temple tax or whether they worked on the Sabbath. What was at the heart of their issue, if you read that prayer, is that Judah had forgotten that God was God and they had forgotten what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. And is it not very possible in a season like ours that we too have forgotten the same? And, and how do you know if you have made too much of politics and turned it into the God that you think you serve? It's because you know when you start letting disagreements devolve into disparagement and denigration and all sorts of 
awful, hateful language, stuff that you would never say to somebody across the table, but that you would love to say and enjoy saying on Facebook, then you perhaps begin to think or that you have forgotten that God is God and that you're out to love your neighbor as yourself. Look, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, as far apart as they once served on the Supreme Court as could be, um, philosophically and politically, um, had deep differences across the divide uh, in all sorts of ways in which they knew the logic of their own position and, and why the logic of it they would never, the twain should meet. Friends, they were not just colleagues, they were friends. And if those two were, were smarter than us and, and more knowledgeable us and, and, and also was able to understand uh, the logic of their position and why it would never come together more than we do, why is it that they're able to but we can't? In the Lord of the Rings it says of humanity, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. And Tolkien didn't have to go far in his fantasy to come up with that notion of humanity. The way out of where we are is going to be a prayer of repentance of remembering that God is God and that we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. But that's not the only thing. That's only Act 1, Act 2. There's this fascinating little interlude between Daniel's prayer and perhaps even get an answer to his prayer. And as you hear him say there in verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, someone comes. Someone whose identity we don't quite know. But in the middle of that prayer of repentance, we realize that if here's somebody that is accepting and acknowledging both his own sin and the sin of his own people, then he is not in any way presumptuous about how God might respond. But in that moment, someone appears, and here, between that prayer and what happens next, Gabriel. Whether it's the one and only Gabriel or somebody else, we're not really clear, but that Gabriel has come with an answer. And the answer to that question that Daniel's been asking, how long is this going to go on? When's it going to be over? What are we doing then? Before Gabriel drops the message, he has a little aside, an aside that he dare not leave out before he goes on with his message. And that is what's in verse 23. And here's what Gabriel says. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. The Hebrew word there is kemda, and it means precious. It means cherished. It means highly esteemed. Gabriel, he's got an answer to Daniel's question. He's got an answer to Daniel's plea. But the first thing he needs to get across is this, a word of high regard. That the way out of where they find themselves and how they got here is to hear and believe this word of regard. It was the Roman poet Aeschylus who said, words are the physicians of a mind diseased. You probably have a memory somewhere in your life where somebody said to you just the right word at just the right time and you soared. And you savored that word. It was like an accolade that you could hold on to and, and, and savor like pudding. 
a word rightly spoken at a fit time, a word of high regard. And, and Daniel receives that. And, and, but know well what he's hearing and what he's not hearing. Gabriel is, is not looking at Daniel and saying, hey man, don't be so hard on yourself. That, that stuff about sin, don't worry about it. I'm not even sure it's really a sin anymore. Um, don't be so hard on yourself. That's, that's not the message Gabriel has for him. He's not disputing Daniel's sense of his own need for contrition. He's not disputing Daniel's sense of the need for his whole people to confess their sin. That's not off the table. He's not denying that. But he's also not denying that Daniel is deeply loved. That this word of regard is not just an encouragement out to lift his spirits. It's a fit word. And there are no exceptions to that. And the question that perhaps Israel would have answered when they heard what Daniel was spoken of, and perhaps it's the question that we might ask in those deep, very private parts of our heart, can anyone believe with the same confidence that Daniel did that he was highly regarded by those whose opinion mattered most? Can you be both utterly cognizant of just how frail you are and how many failures you have succumbed to and how much corruption that you struggle with and yet at the same time believe that you are deeply loved, that you have been given a word of regard. Friends, we do. If you are in Christ, you have received a word of great regard and it had absolutely nothing to do with you. Daniel was esteemed in many ways and often for his faithfulness, but you have been given a word of regard having absolutely nothing to do with you. You've been given a gift. Now, not all gifts are equal. Some gifts have strings attached. What is the nature of this gift? What is the kind of gift that we have received from Jesus? I'll, I'll give you a, an SAT word that comes from a theologian named Paul Barclay. What is the kind of gift that we've received in Christ? It's an incongruous gift. Oh, say that word, incongruous, which is just a high-sounding word of it doesn't fit it doesn't match the one who is the recipient of the gift. It's like giving a Stradivarius to a gorilla. It's like giving a diamond to a thief. It's like when the Monsignor in Les Miserables gives to Jean Valjean, who had already stole the silverware, he gives him the more expensive silver candlesticks. The gift doesn't fit with the one who receives it. It is incongruous. That is the nature of the gift that we've received in Jesus. And it's a word, not just a word, but a deed of high regard. It's, it's the weekend that we celebrate the Reformation, which wouldn't be legitimate if we didn't quote Martin Luther at least once. And what did Martin Luther say about the nature of this incongruous gift? God accepts no one except the abandoned makes no one healthy except the sick, gives no one sight except the blind, brings no one to life except the dead, and makes no one holy except sinners. You and I, in this season, are so tempted to forget something so fundamental, mainly about the gift that we've been given, that is of such great value, that it comes to us at great cost to somebody other than themselves, and comes to us quite in spite of anything of our deserving. Why are we so tempted to act 
with such lack of humility and to think others with contempt in a season like this because we have forgotten the word of regard that we would not have apart from His grace. And when we reckon with that, and when we believe that, not only does it solve something of how we treat one another or think of this whole process, but it is the way out of how we've gotten here. What's the way out? Unplug. No. Uh, our Lord at work in the heart and minds of people in our lives. I think somehow we have to be able to set aside our screens and our phones and get back to being with people and respecting each other and not relying on creating a little world inside of a phone. We can't keep going further apart. What brings us together? How do we, how do we get back together? It seems like somebody has to sacrifice some way. I think we have to find a way to identify with more than just the one group of like our people. And we have to recognize that we have common things with the other groups as well. And so to become less, to have the lines be less strongly drawn between the groups. We are all one and if the entire world can see that we will start moving in the right direction. So the way out is open communication, going into a conversation with compassion and actually like listening ears. I think we have to come to some sort of crisis um, that we, you know, haven't necessarily reached and uh, that the crisis is normally what uh, can change things at that um, massive scale. Repentance. Him. Seek him first and start applying him to our lives and we'll, we'll find our way out. Only Jesus can unlock our hearts from serving ourselves, the slavery, the tyranny of self, um, and to think about him and what he thinks about the world through his word, but also to think about others as much as we think about ourselves. People putting someone besides themselves first. If there is a way out, it's repentance. Which gets us to one last thought. Act three of this story, not only of how we've gotten here, but how do we start extricating ourselves from it. The last four verses of this passage are the most convoluted, not only in the chapter, but perhaps of the entire book of Daniel. And more ink has been spilled to account for what's going on in those four verses than, again, any other passage in the whole book. And, you know, if you love that kind of thing, fantastic. Um, we have some great supplemental resources in the sermon resource page here. Clearly, whatever is happening in the last four verses in talking about weeks, there's a, a seven-week span and then a 62-week span and then a one-week span that's divided up into two halves. And then there's talk of a, a prophetic word that announces the, a decree. And then there's, spooking, there's language about an anointed one and then an anointed leader. And then one who is like a final enemy upon the people of God who comes and tries to impose his will and, and, um, 
and dispense with true worship, and finally he is met with ruin by the God who is the God of all things. And that's all in there, and you can sift through it at your leisure for any length of time if you want to probe through that. But I think what you really want to hear me say is what is the gist of what he's out to say here in Act 3 of the way out of where they've come. It's this. There is talk of a decree of when Judah might have an end to its exile. And sure enough, guess what? It's not so long after this moment that King Cyrus of Persia authorizes the end to the exile. Judah and Israel can return to its promised land and begin restoring and recovering and rediscovering the life it once had. That sounds familiar. But then, in some much later day, there would be an anointed one. An anointed one who would come and speak truth. An anointed one who would come and speak of a temple rebuilt, but an anointed one who then would come and be cut off. And the whole temple would be brought to ruin once more. That, that sounds familiar too. That sounds like one whom we know is Jesus, who was himself anointed, and who shortly after his death and resurrection, Jerusalem fell again in AD 70. See, to hear what he's talking about in, in this is, is kind of like looking up in the night sky and the stars. You look at constellations and you see a bunch of stars that are next to one another and you think, gosh, they're close, when in truth one is here and one is perhaps 40 million light years further away, but it all just appears like they're close. In, in hearing Daniel's vision here of what Gabriel has told him, it's kind of like things that sound like they're smushed together or actually separated by long distances of time. But where it's all headed... And the point of all of that convoluted speech is the gist of this. Act 3 is all about a day of reckoning. A day when everything that once was broken will be mended again. That everything that was arrayed against God's intentions would finally be put down. That is a day of reckoning. And it is coming and it was meant to encourage Israel, and it is meant to encourage anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord as the source of their strength. This God, who is one from before time, who exists outside of time, who is the one who is operating within the course of time in some mysterious way, his sights, his greatest orientation is onto a future time in when time shall be no more and all things shall be new. That will come with a day of reckoning. That will come with it an end to all things. That, friends, is Act 3. And, beloved, to hear that, which you've heard us before in other chapters of this passage, you might ask yourself again, what of it? Especially in this season when all we can think about is what's going to happen Tuesday. I'll tell you why it matters. To believe in a day of reckoning is, first of all, to receive a good reason to be at rest. I'll tell you why we're not at rest. It's because we have narrowed our view and come to believe that the present is all that is, and that any future hope that we might have will always be at the mercy of random occurrences and those who are most poised to exercise their influence. And in that, there is no rest. It's the source of our unrest. But this day of reckoning is out to encourage in us a rest in which we might believe that our present is not our only reality. And our future is not only in the hands of random occurrences and those with power. 
but it is actually overseen and orchestrated in some mysterious way by the one who will bring a day of reckoning. That's a reason to rest, that we might not be afraid and that we might not let our passions boil over and, and turn into that which is degrading and devastating. But far from it only encouraging rest to you, it's also meant to encourage in you a resolve. A resolve to continue in the way of his kingdom in word and in deed, in justice and in mercy, in proclamation of who this gospel is, and in demonstration of what happens to those who have been inspired by it. That is the nature of what it means to work alongside him and to have a resolve on the basis of this day of reckoning. Look, I'll put that in really simplest terms. If God has his eye on an eternal future in which none of his will is thwarted, and he has invited us not only to be in relationship, in communion with him, but to participate in that same work, then as surely as the gift of making us his is a gift, so too is it a gift to do as he does. And to make that point really crystal clear, let me borrow one more line from Gilead. When it comes to forgiveness, Reverend Ames says this, Grace is the great gift, so to be forgiven is only half the gift. The other half is that we also can forgive, restore, and liberate. And therefore, we can feel the will of God enacted through us, which is the great restoration of ourselves to ourselves. It's a gift to be forgiven, but it is also a gift as well as a trial to be forgiving, to enact forgiveness, to know that what we do is the same as what he does. And therefore, that day of reckoning to which we might look forward to, even though we can't see it, but with the eyes of faith, it is that gift that gives us the resolve to act in the way of His will. Beloved, this is what we're called to. This is the gift that He's given us. This is the way forward out of response to asking ourselves, how did we get here? How do we get here? And how do we get out? It will be through a prayer of repentance. It will be through receiving and believing a word of regard. And in that word, being, finding both rest and resolve on the basis of the day of reckoning. Friends, this is the way God has spoken.